0: For entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed
1: should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views, and statements, expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted as official policy or
0: position of any entity aside from possibly cashlight, moral hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to screwing up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, and Stuart is not here tonight, again, Paul, but uh, we'll, well, we'll hello, get by. Well, hello, Matt. There we go. <laughs> How'd that feel? Felt great. Felt great. Great. Good I stuff. was still talking when you said it, so it kind of feels like Stuart's here, but, you know. <laughs> uh, and with us tonight, Paul, is returning co-host, Dr. Justin Lee Burke. Hello. <laughs> Paul, Before we start talking about the specifics of tonight's show, can you remind people what it is we generally do on the curbsiders?
1: Delighted to, as always, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Uh, We often spend the first portion of the show getting to know our guests a little bit and hearing what they do to decompress, but if that kind of thing you find less helpful, I guess you could skip ahead if you wanted to, and you can look at the timestamps in the show notes to do so.
0: Justin, why don't you why don't you tell the audience a little bit about the show tonight? And uh, I think we we had forgotten some information that we wanted to uh, insert into the show at this point.
2: Sure. So we have a a great show tonight on sickle cell disease, the primary care of patients with sickle cell disease, and addressing all of the complications um, as they arise in the hospital, or a good portion of them. Um, one of the things that we talk about is the Genetics of sickle cell disease. And so, a quick review of the structure of hemoglobin. We're all born with two hemoglobin genes. The typical hemoglobin genes are A and A, which is what you typically find in a healthy patient. Of note, when you are first born, one of the hemoglobin genes is F, or fetal hemoglobin, which we talk about later in the setting of hydroxyria. There are other hemoglobinopathies or changes in these genes. Uh, that can be found in beta thalassemia, alpha thalassemia, you can have hemoglobin C um, trait, or in the case of uh, tonight's episode, we'll talk about the S gene, um, where the SS uh, mutations are what make up sickle cell disease, the S mutation with a normal A make up sickle cell trait, and then you can also have other uh, genes uh, genotypes of central cell disease that we'll talk about throughout the show.
0: I think that's a great overview. Thank you, Justin. I I, I certainly needed that overview. So <laughs> <laughs> the I
1: audience that about two hours ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so our, our wonderful guest for tonight's episode is Dr. Sophie Lanscron. She is an associate professor of medicine and oncology in the division of hematology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and is the director of the Sickle Cell Center for Adults at Johns Hopkins. It delivers state-of-the-art, multidisciplinary care to over 500 patients. She is internationally recognized for her pioneering research on the optimal care and management of patients with sickle cell disease. She has served on the National Institutes of Health, expert panel in the management of sickle cell disease, and serves on the American Society for Hematology Sickle Cell Guideline Panel. Her research focuses on improving the quality of care provided to this historically underserved population, and the Johns Hopkins Sickle Cell Infusion Center, which opened in 2008, provides urgent care to patients in crisis so that they can bypass the emergency department. This remarkable innovation has led to numerous numerous improvements, including decreases in admissions, 30-day readmissions, and most importantly, rapid relief of pain in a patient-centered environment. This innovative model of care is currently being emulated throughout the country. Needless to say, we are thrilled to feature Dr. Lance Cron on the show. So without further ado, here's our interview. Sophie, the first question that we always like to ask our guests is, can you give a one-liner to describe yourself and include something about yourself outside of what you do as a physician?
3: Sure, so um, I am an adult hematologist. Uh, and I um, really enjoy taking care of adults with sickle cell disease. I am married to a, a nephrologist, and so we have really great dinner conversation. Uh, and um, and we have two two teenage boys and uh, are newly empty nesters. So life is good.
0: Okay. Uh, so the dinner conversations, based on the pre-recording, you're talking about urine specific gravity. You were just a, for a peek behind the curtain for the audience. a well, fascinating conversation. You,
3: you know, you, a lot, lot of patients. You know, whether my husband does some used to do medicine, and he'd have patients with hematologic disorders who were bleeding, and so we we my poor children. They they know, they know terms like bleeding out and all sorts of exciting conversation we have over the dinner table wonderful <laughs> yeah, you're left actually, speechless by this i see yeah
1: not that different from williams uh holiday conversations and there are actually no doctors in my family we just we oh, end really? up leading out regardless
3: oh <laughs> uh, yeah so fun
1: we're gonna switch things up i'm gonna ask you tell me about a movie that you've recently enjoyed or even your favorite movie if you are feeling brave enough to even answer that question
3: <laughs> oh yeah no no problem there my favorite movie is fever pitch Fever Pitch—you don't know. Fever Pitch is the story of uh, the Boston love story of the Boston Red Sox. So it was filmed. I, I grew up right outside of Boston, and uh, and grew up with the Red Sox being like just pathetic my whole uh, my whole life until two thousand and four. And Fever Pitch was filmed that year, and they didn't know how the season was going to end. And it's just a great movie, especially if you happen to be a Red Sox fan. <laughs>
1: I would. Was... I that would amplify the experience a lot. <laughs>
0: I was there, I was in college at the time and it was, it was very exciting in Kenmore Square. I was in Kenmore Square at the, t- uh, well, for the whole playoffs and the World Series. My gosh, I'm so, I'm lucky I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. It's just awesome.
2: So my question is, can you talk about uh, some of the best advice you've ever received as a learner or someone in the field of medicine?
3: I think the best advice I got was never say never and never say always. And I, I think that, has, that really rings true uh, every day when you practice medicine and in most of the things you do in life.
2: And, and one more question, what level are you on uh, Pokemon Go?
3: Really, <laughs> I did mention the two the two boys and the husband, so I am um my uh, level thirty four if you must know it's amazing yeah it 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 is it's amazing when you know your teenage boy says, Let's go for a walk outside, and you're like what what are you talking about and it's all about Pokemon. I'm like, you know whatever it takes <laughs>
0: <laughs> who knew video games were getting uh causing people to be so physically active i That's right. <laughs> sure uh i guess since we're we're throwing out pokemon paul did you have a pick of the week
1: i i actually do this week i it's it's been a dry spell for movies that i've liked and there's been a movie that i've been passing by on that's been on demand i mean for months now and it's called thoroughbreds and every time i see it i think well that looks kind of interesting and then i skip past it um so i finally dedicated a couple hours to watching it and holy smokes i like it so it's this movie thoroughbreds as 2017 is directed by Corey finley and it stars Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor Joy uh, and Anton Yelchin. Anya Taylor Joy, you might remember from The Witch. Um, she was also the female protagonist in Split. So, and I, I find her really compelling to watch in any case. But it's basically about two friends, one of whom is an absolute sociopath, but also the most likable character in the movie, <laughs> and how they um, they end up sort of plotting to kill the other friend's stepfather, uh, and how they sort of um, interact with a, a drug dealer played by Anton Yelchin to help to help facilitate that. It's. I don't, it's a really remarkable movie i can't believe it's it's a uh, it's a debut feature because it's funny at times the last scene where literally nothing happens is a static frame is one of the most suspenseful things i've ever seen it's just it's so it's it's sort of touching and uh, suspenseful and funny and really dark um so it just kind of checks all the boxes off for me so if you have if you haven't seen thoroughbreds and you've enjoyed any of my movie recommendations I, i'll throw that one out there
0: the 0.01% of our audience who is uh, watching. There's
1: <laughs> 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 yep. that one guy in pop you I did, really my recommendations. I,
0: I did see the trailer for that, Paul. It, it looked really good. That's the kind of thing that my wife would never, ever in a million years watch with me. I can only get her to watch romantic comedies. So Sophie, Fever Pitch, she would definitely watch that There you go. I'm telling you, an excellent film. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, did you have a pick before we get into the main topic?
2: Sure. Yeah, I'll do a quick one. Um, there's a book I read not that long ago called Indefensible by David Feige. He's a uh, public defense attorney in like the Bronx, I think. Um, it's a really great story about, it's a very noble work that he does. I think there's a lot of overlap between public defense and I think urban health primary care. Um, ever since like I read To Kill a Mockingbird, I think that's been a uh, public defender's voice is kind of a soft spot in my heart. Uh, anyway, it's a very inspirational book. It's great. It's non-medicine, um, but related enough that it's worth a read.
0: Thank you. And I think now it's time for you to give us a, uh, well, uh, do we have a case well, why don't, tonight? Nothing from you. Uh, I wasn't good no, I don't, I don't think so.
1: No soccer ball. No. <laughs> <laughs> Has everybody gotten, a, uh, <laughs>
0: does everyone have a TRX, uh, system for their, <laughs> <laughs> for their office yet? No, let's just get into the case here.
2: Sure. Uh, Great. So we'll start talking uh, about a patient who just kind of comes to clinic. So um, in fact, we'll say it's a, a 28-year-old male. You don't know that much about him, but you're told that he has sickle cell disease, and he's here for uh, to basically establish care with a new provider. He will say he moved from another state. Um, has no acute concern. Says it's been about a year since any type of complications or crisis. Um, doesn't really have daily pain. Um, is on a medicine called hydroxyurea, uh, has had 10 transfusions in his life, and uh, those are his his basic things that he tells you. Um, so kind of starting from square one, can you talk a little bit about what is sickle cell disease? Is it different than sickle cell disease, sickle cell anemia? Um, how would you explain the disease process of sickle cell disease and what the complications are?
3: Right, so sickle cell disease is a disorder of the hemoglobin, a congenital disorder. Uh, where you have a single base substitution of a of a valine for a glutamine, and you end up with abnormal hemoglobin, and those hemoglobin molecules end up sticking together and forming fo- polymers in red cells, which changes the shape of the red cells and shortens the red cell survival and causes hemolysis. Uh, and there are sort of, I, I like to think of the two consequences of the polymerization of the hemoglobin inside the red cell. One is that the red cell is stiff and uh, can't get through the microvasculature. We also know that, that part of the story of the stiffness and the inability of getting through the microvasculature is a combination of an increased expression of adhesion molecules and a whole bunch of down downward effects that Um, cause a very sticky environment in the endothelial space and in the vascular space. And so the red cells uh, get stuck, and that's what causes a crisis. And then the second consequence of this is the hemolysis. So we know that about 30% of the hemolysis that occurs in sickle cell disease occurs in the vascular space, uh, and that causes a scavenging of nitric oxide because you have free hemoglobin in the vascular space and that scavenging of nitric oxide leads to its own set of consequences, um, including uh, vasoconstriction and and increased adhesion molecule expression. And so there's sort of these combination of events that happen with this abnormal uh, polymerization of hemoglobin within the red cells. And this question about sickle cell disease versus sickle cell anemia, this is really Semantics. So when when a sickle cell doc says sickle cell anemia, they're talking about people who are homozygous for SS disease, or S beta zero thalassemia. So these disorders where you don't make any other type of hemoglobin, you might make some F and some A, but no other major types of hemoglobin. Versus people who have SC disease, who make S and Z, and people with S beta plus thal, who make S and some normal uh, hemoglobin A. So sickle cell disease encompasses all the types of sickle cell disease, but sickle cell anemia is really limited to the people with we consider to have the more se- most severe form of the disease.
2: And so, just to try kind to of con- uh, uh, reiterate that the patients that have sickle cell SS and sickle cell beta thal typically have the more common sickle cell anemia phenotype and complications, whereas those with sickle beta positive or uh, sickle C SC disease have less severe phenotypes, correct?
3: That is the way we think about it. But remember, everybody's sort of on this bell curve. So we see people with SC disease who have very severe disease and people with SS disease who have fairly mild disease.
0: So I confess to you, Sophie, early on that uh, I am—I I don't know much about sickle cell uh, other than the reading I've done for, for this podcast, because until recently, uh, there weren't a lot of patients with sickle cell disease at, at Cashlack. Can you just give us, like, so the SS, SC, uh, the, the beta thal? can you kind of um, give us the basics of, like, what type of, what is the hemoglobin, what should we have, and, and how do the sickle cell patients differ, differ based on their, their genotype?
3: Right. So we should all have hemoglobin A, um, and people with sickle traits make some sickle hemoglobin and some a hemoglobin A. And it's really important to be able to recognize what that looks like on a hemoglobin electrophoresis or actually an HPLC um, to see that quantifies how much hemoglobin you make. So if you have sickle trait, you will make 40% S and 60% A. If you have SS, then the majority of your hemoglobin is going to be sickle, so somewhere 80-90% will be sickle, and then you'll have some F and some A2 mixed in there, but most of it is going to be sickle hemoglobin. If you have sickle beta-0-thal, that means on one gene, you're making sickle hemoglobin, and because it's a beta-null mutation, that means that that other gene doesn't make anything, so you just have the hemoglobin from the one, one gene, so you make just sickle hemoglobin. If you have sickle beta plus Thal, then you make sickle from one gene. And because it's a beta plus mutation, that means it works somewhat and you make a varying amount of hemoglobin A. And it's really important to be able to recognize that someone who has sickle beta plus Thal will have 40% A and 60% S. And you'd be surprised how many times people mess that up and tell people that they have trait or that people who have, have... Trait have disease and people get very confused. And finally, SC disease means you make about half S and half C because you have a C mutation in one gene and an S mutation in the other gene. And there are some minor, other minor other genotypes of that manifest as sickle cell disease, but those are really the most common ones we see.
1: And this, sorry, just because I'm not a smart person, <laughs> but this sounds like a really important point is the difference, if you could just reiterate the difference between trait and the S beta plus, am I even saying this right? The the two that can sometimes be confused if you could sort of just recapitulate the difference between the two and what they look like um, phenotypically, that would be helpful.
3: Yes, I think that's really important. So if someone with trait will not have manifestations of disease and they will have on their hemoglobin electrophoresis on their, their when they do an HPLC, which is the test we use to quantify how much hemoglobin, they will have more hemoglobin A than hemoglobin S, but people with S beta plus Thal will have more S than A, and they will have manifestations of sickle cell disease.
1: Gotcha, thank you.
0: Okay, so hemoglobin A is good. Hemoglobin S, <laughs> <laughs> hemoglobin S is bad. <laughs> Am I, is that, is that basic enough? <laughs> yeah,
3: I didn't realize that's what you wanted, but yes, that's it.
0: No, no, no That I, I was, I was, uh, I was making fun of myself for, uh, for my limited grasp on the topic. <laughs> uh, I don't look at, you know, I don't look at a lot of uh, hemoglobin electrophoresis, like once in a while I send it and then I would have to just like look up Google search, like what, what am I looking at here? How do I, how do I now interpret that? So.
3: Uh. Yeah, no, you're not alone at lots of people, right? It's a rare disease, right? There are 100,000 people in this country who have sickle cell disease. It's a, it's a rare disease. And so you are not alone. Lots of people see one or two people, but those one or two people still need high quality care.
0: Right.
2: Okay. So coming back to our patient who comes into the office, um, can you talk a little bit about What preventative maintenance does this patient need, or or what does this patient need in kind of a long-term basis to make sure that we're um, reducing the complications of sickle cell disease and maximizing his health?
3: Yeah, it's an excellent question. Uh, So there are some guidelines. Based recommendations for routine health maintenance for people with sickle cell disease. One is they should get the routine health maintenance that they would get if they didn't have sickle cell disease. That's number one. But on top of that, um, we think a little bit differently about patient risk. So because people with sickle cell disease don't have a functional spleen. If they have an SS, they've auto-infarcted their spleen. Sometimes as a kid, people have their spleens removed. But you can just assume that an adult who walks into your office with sickle cell disease does not have a functional spleen. And that means they need to be immunized against encapsulated bacteria, so pneumococcal vaccinations, meningococcal vaccination, H flu, um, and then the influenza vaccine, too, is also crucial for this patient population because we know they don't do well when they get the flu. Um, And then routine health maintenance also includes some standard laboratory tests. So we do a CBC and a reticulocyte count and chemistries to look at. Uh, kidney and liver function but one of the really interesting things that we should talk about is that the serum creatinine is an incredibly poor measure of renal dysfunction in people with sickle cell disease so the renal medulla is the most hypoxic part of the body and so the kidney is the one of the earliest affected organs in this disease so kids can't concentrate their urine they have hypostanuria and then as people age they, they, And as children, they have hyperfiltration and they hypersecrete creatinine into their urine. So we expect their creatinines to be quite low. So it's a really poor measure of overall renal dysfunction. As when you start to see the creatinine rise, that means they've lost a significant amount of their renal function. And so the recommendation is to screen, looking either for proteinuria or, or microalbuminuria, there's still up in the air about which one's the best test, on an annual basis. Uh, to see if there's evidence that they're spilling protein, which is a, an early sign of renal disease. Go ahead. In addition, we <laughs> we recommend uh, we every patient is also, it's a sickle cell disease that can affect every organ in the body. Um, Annual eye exams, looking for signs of retinal disease, which increases the risk of vision loss, is also an additional recommendation for this patient population.
1: Not that you have a sense at our level, which is incredibly basic, it sounds like, and I, I won't speak for Justin, but do you mind just even at, if we can get to the very beginning with this patient presents to the office for the first time, what sort of history is important to ask about their disease? So the preventive stuff helpful, but I noticed you know, we talk about triggers and and uh, pain crises, but like, is, is there anything that is really historically important that we should be getting out at that initial visit for a first-time patient? Uh, presenting with sickle cell disease.
3: Yeah. So you. So when I meet a patient for the first time, I sort of, the the first and key thing I, I ask them after I find out at what age they were diagnosed, which now because there's newborn screening, most people are diagnosed at birth. Um, I ask them what a typical crisis is like. I think it's really important for me to understand and for them to get a feel for one, I, I know what I'm talking about, but also that <laughs> that we get a sense of what a a typical crisis is like, because when a patient presents an atypical crisis, that's a warning sign that something bad might be going on that you really have to think about. So I talk to them about what a typical crisis is like for them, where they have pain. I also ask them what works for them when they're having pain, whether they're treating themselves at home or when they're coming into the emergency room. Because That's useful when they come into the emergency room or into our infusion clinic so I know what to treat them with. So those are the first key things I talk to them about. I talk to them about whether or not they have chronic everyday pain because that also changes our management and changes how we think about things. And then to talk to them about what complications they've had. So I run through the most common ones, whether they've had leg ulcers, whether they know they have proteinuria, whether they've had a stroke, whether they've had acute chest syndrome, uh, whether they've had blood clots. All of those things are really important in thinking about how to manage them in the future. Another crucial thing we talk about is their transfusion history. So I want to know uh, how many units of blood they've had in the past because Getting over twenty, thirty, forty, fifty units of blood suggests that they might be at risk for iron overload. And then I ask them whether or not they've, they've anyone's ever had trouble finding blood for them, or if they know they have an, any antibodies. Because patients who get transfused are at risk for developing antibodies to other people's uh, blood, and it's really important to know that because you may not pick it up on a type and screen that day.
0: That was a great question, Paul. I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you thought to ask that. Th- th- so this gentleman. If he's coming in telling you he has hemoglobin SS, do you do you take that as face value or a new patient coming into the any system would you retest them with a hemoglobin electrophoresis and the HPLC?
3: Yeah, so if I don't have the test, I will repeat it cuz um often patients don't know exactly what they have. Mm-hmm. Um and and it's useful for me to make sure that I've confirmed the correct diagnosis.
0: That that just seems to be something that I've seen in practice where uh, p- people. People documented in the chart what type the what what is the patient's genotype, and uh, patients may or may not understand that themselves, and they might they might say they might kind of tell you they have SS, but maybe they really have something less severe, or they just have trait, which I've also seen. So,
1: right, and I feel like there's a rich oral history of trait, especially that just gets carried on in perpetuity without any kind of testing or confirmation. Like we just take it on on face value.
3: Yes, met a woman a few weeks ago who uh, said, uh, uh, my brother had sickle cell disease. I had trait. I have trait. She didn't have trait. She had disease. Uh, And just no one had ever bothered sending the test. And she did. (laughs) She had disease. And you don't see that as much anymore because starting really in the 1980s, newborn screening started. But when you're meeting a 40, 50, or 60-year-old person, it is highly possible that they have never been tested.
1: Oh, my gosh. I'm having palpitations.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I did want to ask what is the life expectancy like now? And let's say this 28-year-old man, let's say he hasn't had much contact with healthcare, but now he's, I don't know, now he's starting a family and he wants to know, am I going to be there? Am I going to live till 90 years old? What, what would you tell this young man?
3: Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, In the 1970s, the average life expectancy was 17. Uh, we now know that about Somewhere upward 95% of children born now will live to their 18th birthday, which is great. And there has been great strides in improving overall survival there. The adult population it's a little bit more fuzzy we don't know exactly what the life expectancy is there's a little bit of data out of the uk and the u.s suggesting now that the average life expectancy is into the 50s or 60s um i you know i have i have a cohort of patients who are in their 70s um but it's you know we it's hard to say someone who's 28 now If you look back, when you talk to my patients who are 50 years old, they'll tell you, oh, my parents were told I wouldn't live to 10. I was told I wouldn't live to 20. I was told I wouldn't live to 30. And like, here they are at 50 and me telling them, right? What they should do because they may not live till really doesn't carry a lot of weight for them. Um, but, but things have changed now. I They're not telling kids that anymore. And we really are trying to strive for, you know, improved overall survival and, and hopefully a near normal life expectancy, but we're not there yet. We still think the overall life expectancy is decreased by 25 to 30 years compared to the general African-American population.
2: So for for this patient, what are other than uh, the the health maintenance and getting a good history of the complications? What are some interventions that are uh, evidence based that can help reduce these complications and can help um, medically optimize these patients?
3: Yeah, so he's on the number one uh, intervention that we well, frankly, that we have for this disease, which is hydroxyurea. And hydroxyurea is a great drug. Um, It it works in multiple ways for people with sickle cell disease. It was originally uh, thought that it would be helpful because they knew years ago that it increased fetal hemoglobin. So in the presence, so when we're all fetuses, we all made fetal hemoglobin. And then most of us, about one year of life, completely stopped making fetal hemoglobin and only make hemoglobin A if... We don't have sickle cell disease or hemoglobin S if we do, but you can reverse that change by giving people hydroxyurea. And so um, hydroxyurea does increase fetal hemoglobin levels, but it also lowers white counts. It lowers adhesion um, molecule expression. It's an NO donor. It's a great drug, and we know it decreases crisis frequency. It decreases the risk of acute chest. It decreases the need for transfusion and two observational trials have shown uh, improved overall survival for people on hydroxyurea, the great drug.
1: And you mentioned maybe some white blood cell suppression. Is there anything that uh, the the primary care doctor should be mindful of for a patient who's on chronic hydroxyurea?
3: Yeah. So I I think primary care doctors can prescribe hydroxyurea. It, It is People think of it as chemotherapy, but that's just because it was what it was used for first. But it's a great, <laughs> great sickle cell sure. drug, and it does cause myelosuppression, um, so you do have to monitor counts. But that's also how we decide how to adjust the dose. So. When we treat somebody with hydroxyurea, we treat to maximally tolerated dose, which means pushing the ANC down, the absolute neutrophil count down to between two and four thousand, really closer to the two thousand than the four thousand, while maintaining a platelet count of greater than ninety thousand and an absolute retic count of greater than ninety thousand. So it's it's really it's a, a really easy drug to use. You just have to monitor counts initially on a monthly basis.
2: I've seen a lot of the patients that come into the hospital are either on hydroxyurea or tend to be getting chronic uh, red blood cell transfusions. Can you talk a little bit about what patients wouldn't be on hydroxyurea or what the alternatives are for hydroxyurea?
3: So the best evidence base for the use of chronic transfusion therapy is in primary stroke prevention in children who've had abnormal transcranial dopplers, um, although there's data to support that as those kids age, they might potentially be able to be switched over to hydroxyurea, or secondary prevention of stroke. Although the data is not great, but everyone believes that if you've got you've had if you've had a stroke, you should be on chronic transfusion therapy, and we know that chronic transfusion therapy when when. The standard protocols are to decrease the percent of hemoglobin S to less than 30 uh, percent, and we know when we do that from these studies in children that we decrease crisis frequency, risk of acute chest syndrome. Um, I, you know, have patients who've been on chronic transfusion therapy since they were two years old. They're now in their 30s and 40s, and they don't know what a crisis is. So it's a very effective therapy, but obviously it requires a, uh, you know, a lot of involvement in the healthcare system, exposure to blood products, and so it's not often patients' first choice when it comes to therapy. Hydroxyurea is indicated most clearly in the data that is there to support it to some people with sickle cell anemia and not necessarily in people who have the variant genotypes. So patients with variant genotypes who have frequent crises, we don't have great therapies to offer. And so that's often the time in which I'll use chronic transfusion therapy or in patients who have failed hydroxyurea therapy.
2: So it sounds like if they've had history of stroke, if they have failed hydroxyurea therapy, or if there's another variant, are a lot of the if a patient came in on chronic red blood cell transfusions, uh, uh, most likely it's one of those three things that have occurred.
0: Correct. I have to say, practicing adult medicine, I I don't I, I was not really aware of this practice until I was reviewing for this for this interview. I, I didn't I I haven't seen it done a lot. I guess the logistics of it just seem like it would be very challenging if someone's getting transfused every couple weeks and you're you're monitoring their hemoglobin S levels, it, it, it seems the logistics would be really challenging there. And and can you just also speak a little bit about the, I, I know it's not as much uh, the transcranial Doppler um, and, and what they actually see on that.
3: So it's flow rates when they do the transcranial doppler. So very fast flow rates suggest an increased risk of stroke. And so the STOP trials, there so were STOP-1 and STOP-2 trials in children demonstrated that if you use the as a screening test and people with high values, you put them on chronic transfusion therapy, you could really decrease significantly their risk of having a stroke. Subsequent trials have shown that as long as you haven't had a stroke, if you can potentially switch those kids to hydroxyurea at some point, um, potentially 18 months, at least 18 months after they've been on chronic transfusion therapy. But it, it's a useful screening test in children. Adults' skulls are too thick, and so we can't use transcranial dopplers, uh, and so we don't, we can't predict who's going to have a stroke or not, unfortunately.
1: And I think if you don't mind, and we don't have to spend a whole ton of time on this, but would you mind just sort of touching on uh, the potential complications of of folks who are on chronic blood transfusions?
3: Sure. So there are two ways we do chronic blood transfusions. One is simple transfusions, which means we just give someone two units of blood once a month um, to decrease their percent S and bring up their hemoglobin sum. Uh, The risks associated with that are exposure to blood products. So there's some infectious risks, but those are pretty small. Um, You can develop antibodies to other people's red cells. Um, so people should get red cells that are phenotypically matched. Um, and the, then the the most common side effect we see that's the most concerning is iron overload, which can happen with simple transfusions, right? Because the only way you really can get rid of blood is by bleeding. And so you're just adding iron, iron, iron on. Um, and so when people have problems with iron overload, um, we that's often a time when we'll switch them to exchange transfusions, which is another way of doing Doing transfusions where you hook someone to a machine, you remove their blood, you put in blood that has normal hemoglobin in it. Um, that often uses requires a large access device, so it it is a little a little bit more invasive of a procedure. But um, if if done in sort of the best environment where patients are coming in with a hemoglobin of 10 and leaving with a hemoglobin of 10, it actually is a bit of a net negative iron load. And you can actually make people iron deficient on chronic exchange transfusions. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we will sometimes in people who are on SIMPLES and are iron overloaded, we will switch them over to exchanges. And people with variant hemoglobins, uh, the SC folks who need to be on chronic exchanges because they have frequent crises and we don't have a lot of other therapies to offer, they typically have hemoglobins of 10 or 11 to begin with, and so we need to, to do exchanges because we can't do simple transfusions in them. If you transfuse a patient with sickle cell disease to a hemoglobin that's too high, you can increase viscosity and cause strokes or crisis or other complications. So typically, we, we don't like having hemoglobins greater than 10 in people with SS disease and really not above too much above the baseline for people with variant disease.
0: Do you track the ferritin there, and, and if so, how often? What what can we be looking out for um, as generalists?
3: Yeah, so we do check ferritins monthly, but you got to be mindful that, unlike beta-thal patients who, who get transfused because they don't make blood, people who have uh, beta-thal major, um, where ferritin is a... a Better test for iron overload than it is in sickle cell disease because ferritin is an acute phase reactant. It doesn't necessarily correlate very well. We do follow it monthly. We don't get really excited when it leaps up, um, but we follow trends. Uh, Annually, we will do MRIs. There are special kinds of MRIs that you can do that can give you the iron quantification, how much iron is in the liver and how much is in the heart. And so we will do that on an annual or semi-annual basis to assess iron overload.
0: I have never heard of that before. That is... Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Learning a lot here. I, I did, you know, and something else that I saw that I was just really alarmed at is the... Uh, so the, the New England Journal had this review in 2017 and they just had these, like, just the body and every system and just kind of labeling, like, all, how all the systems are affected. And one of them was cognitive impairment and the, the silent cerebral infarctions... Clinically, is that a huge problem for these these pe- people in their twenties, thirties, forties? Do you do you see that a lot clinically?
3: We do, and it is a huge problem. We know thirty percent of kids will have silent cerebral infarcts, and there's just like not a lot of data in adult populations. But to assume one that the that that people don't live with those the damage done in childhood for their whole lives is unrealistic. But there's some recent data by Mike Debon um, suggesting that that adults ha- go on and, and also have silent cerebral infarcts and that if you've had a silent cerebral infarct it increases your risk of having another silent cerebral infarct and so I do think this is really important and people right people often say this is a frustration frustrating population to take care of um, and they're you know dealing with chronic pain is, is problematic but another aspect of this is this neurocognitive dysfunction you tell a patient to do something and they're not doing anything you want them to do and you don't don't quite get why those are the people who need to be tested for neurocognitive dysfunction it's it's pretty common.
0: I just never thought of that because, uh, it, it's definitely where I practice. These patients are on opioids. A lot of the times these patients are very forthcoming. They're, they're smoking, smoking marijuana. Is that affecting their, their cognition as well? Uh, Paul, we've talked about this on prior shows. I know we, we have a, and the answer is who knows <laughs> the answer is who knows, but I never really thought that this is, uh, these patients have this just like kind of like very premature, cog- could have this premature cognitive impairment based on on the insults to their vasculature. Just it just hadn't occurred to me.
3: Yeah, I, I think we need to be more mindful about this and really think about it. So, right, those patients who you're just incredibly frustrated with um, for lots of different reasons probably have a lot of cognitive dysfunction. And it's a lot of executive function. So you if you're just trying to have a regular conversation, you might not pick up on it at all. But if you delve just a little bit deeper, you will discover that there are a lot of issues.
1: Interesting. And so, if you have access or ready access to neuropsychological testing, that's something you have a fairly low threshold to refer patients for.
3: Yes.
0: Yeah. My, I, I just like it might even. It seems like it might even be something that could improve the physician-patient relationship. If you're just like you, yeah. you could have more insight into the behaviors you're seeing, or you could provide, you could meet them where they're at more than you would if you, you know, if you were ignoring the fact that that existed.
3: Absolutely. I think that it is really important it, and it really helps the the physician or the provider understand where the patient's coming from.
0: So we're we're sort of moving towards this. We have a couple cases of acute complications of sickle cell, but with this young man, we we just mentioned opioids. That's a huge issue in this population. Can you tell us what are your thoughts on you know, how does the sickle cell population tie into the opioid crisis and do they get opioid use disorder?
3: Um, So I think they do get opioid use disorder, although some others of of my colleagues would argue with me. I I think there's some key things to keep in mind. If you're sitting in an emergency room somewhere and a patient rolls through the door, it is not your job to figure out whether this is a crisis or chronic pain or real pain it's really right none of us i, I, I work with a great psychiatrist um, who really works with our sickle population and he's like it just right? Believing or not believing, this is not part of the story here. It's the question is, what's the most appropriate thing to do at this moment? And um, and I think ED providers are in a tough spot. Um, they want to do the right thing and they're torn by by the dangers of opioids and the benefits of opioids. Um, and so what I typically tell our, our frontline docs in the ED is that, is that really it's not up to them to it shouldn't be up to them to decide who who needs what and um and that's a reason that every patient needs a hematologist because every patient should have a patient specific treatment plan when they're rolling through the emergency room and a patient who doesn't have one you really can't be the one guessing whether this is a real crisis or not cuz there is no objective measure of crisis there just isn't one um and that is part of the struggle here and so if you're on the front lines you got to treat um and and treat appropriately
0: uh, you you would extend that to uh, when when Paul, Justin, and I are working in the hospital. It's not really our job to sort out sort that out,
3: right? It's really not. I mean, we don't spend time sorting out whether we believe the patient or not. It has nothing to do with it. We, you know, one one it's wasted time and effort because you're never going to figure it out. Um, and and pain, right? Pain is a really a real challenge and the question is is what's the best way to manage that pain right if a patient is depressed they're going to have pain because they're depressed and that aspect of their of their disease has to be managed as well and so this it really it's complex and so we have to treat the sickle cell disease and its manifestations and that means using hydroxyurea or chronic transfusion therapy and we also have to address the behavioral side of things as well um, 10 years ago, a kid like this came rolling through the clinic complaining of chronic pain. I would probably have put them on an opioid. I now, honestly, I, I think a little bit harder about those decisions because after doing this for as long as I've been doing this and seeing the data that's coming out, it, there's no data that chronic opioid use uh, improves quality of life. And there are real questions about its harms. Um, and so we try to be a lot more thoughtful about how we're using opioids. In the acute setting, it's what patients need and should have. And um, in the chronic setting they they need doctors who think about or providers who think about what the appropriate way to manage pain is for that for that individual.
0: What can you give us an example of what might be a typical pain regimen for someone like this gentleman uh who who's not getting admitted to the hospital on a frequent basis, maybe he gets admitted once a year. What what might his a typical pain regimen look like?
3: So I actually firmly believe that patients with sickle cell disease, just like this guy who doesn't come in very often, should have um, short-acting opioids at home so that he can manage his pain uh, at home if he needs to. And he should use a stepwise approach, right? He he knows at this point when the crisis come on, comes on, if it's going to be a really bad one, if he can get away with some non-steroidals, assuming his renal function's okay, um, <laughs> whether he can get away with non right. or whether he needs to 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 start using some opioids. Um, And I, you know, I like to start with oxycodone. I don't like Tylenol mixed in because I worry about too much Tylenol uh, and acetaminophen. Um, But I, I think it's perfectly reasonable for someone like him to have oxycodone on the shelf so that he can try and manage his pain at home instead of having to come in for acute care.
0: Do you ever use extended release opioids in this population or just try to stick to the short acting?
3: Um, we have a boatload of people who are on extended-release opioids because we 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 have had a long history of using them. Sure. Um, we are we're moving away from them, but in the appropriate patient, it's still the appropriate medicine. Um, and you know it's hard to describe what exactly the appropriate patient is. Um, but an older patient who has a vascular necrosis, um, who doesn't have surgical options, then then it might be the most appropriate the most appropriate management tool, but but we really work together with pain management to make those decisions, and and pain management that has an awareness of sickle cell disease and its complications.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, if you mentioned just to go back that uh, there was no objective measure uh, for an acute pain crisis, is that correct? So, LDH levels or um, no other lab finding can really help support uh, evidence if a patient does come into the ED complain of pain is that correct
3: that is correct their, their labs can look just like they did the week before when they were in clinic you you can see a drop in hemoglobin and, and an increase in retic but you certainly don't need to have that in order to have a crisis the gold standard that you're having a crisis that a patient's having a crisis is that they tell you they're having a crisis
1: yeah. So since, as we as we do with our pretend patients, we torture them. Um, so let's. So we're talking about acute pain. Let's actually give some specificity to it. So let's say this patient. It's summertime. The patient's out swimming and having a good time, and just suddenly starts experiencing extreme pain in his left upper shoulder. And so, um, so for this specific example, the patient comes in. They're reporting pain in are setting of sickle cell disease. So from a musculoskeletal standpoint. It sounds like lab work is not terribly helpful is there any other workup that might be needed and how do you how do you triage the severity of this of this pain complaint
3: Yeah so I I am checking laboratories first of all we're going to do a little bit of education when he's feeling a little bit better about jumping into the cold water on a summer day <laughs> if he hasn't already learned his lesson most of my patients can't can't go swimming um, because they, they get a crisis when they do that.
1: Jeez, that <laughs> yeah. never would have occurred to me. Holy yeah. cow.
3: Yeah. Or, well, you know, sitting in a cold movie theater, all these sorts of things, right, that these patients just can't do. Um, so the first question to ask is whether this is a typical crisis. If this is not a typical crisis, then the hair is standing up on the back of my neck and I'm like, oh, what what is what badness is coming my way? If this is a typical crisis for this patient, um, I do check a CBC. You, you don't want to miss things like an a plus. Plastic crisis or something else going on? You want to make sure this patient's making blood because they have a hemo- chronic hemo- hemolysis. We need to make sure they're making blood. So we'll do a CBC and a retic. Um, you know, if the patient says, "Yeah, this is my my typical crisis," and everything else looks okay, I mean, we still in our infusion clinic will check chemistries. You could argue whether they're necessary or not. Um, and uh, but but I would do that sort of routine. Standard workup. If the patient says it's typical crisis, then I would treat with their typical regimen because we we know what what works for our patients, right? Because we've spoken to the patient about what that is, um, and or we've done it in the past. And so we'll treat the patient for pain with some IV fluids and some pain medications and see if we can't get things to turn around, uh, so they don't need to be admitted.
1: And I, I feel like a fool for asking, but I'm just going to go ahead and fire away anyway. How how helpful is the physical exam? in these particular, these particular instances, what things are you looking for? Is it, you know, does it change your management at all? And what kind of things we should be mindful of when actually examining a patient with an acute pain crisis?
3: Yeah. So certainly the vitals, making sure they're not febrile <laughs> and tachycardic, although often they're tachycardic because they're in pain, but certainly something to be mindful about. Um, their respiratory status, their pulse ox is also key. You want to make sure they're not hypoxic. Uh, and then, yeah, 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 physical exam, you're listening to the lungs, listening for any changes, although typically people with acute chest often... And don't have any lung findings. Um, I try not to torture the patients by doing a detailed exam of the place that hurts like the Dickens, because that often doesn't help. But you want to visualize it. You want to make sure there's no swelling over the area uh, and that you're not missing something else. One of the key things to remember is that just because you have sickle cell disease does not mean that everything that ever happens to you in your whole life is just sickle cell disease, <laughs> right? You can get septic arthritis. You can have lots of other things. And so you, you do have to keep your differential diagnosis wide uh, until you've really settled that that you know what's going on with these patients.
0: My colleagues would kill me if I don't ask this question: PCA versus like demand opioids, IV versus oral. Does it matter? Should we even think about that? I, I I've worked in places where that's kind of a fight between the patients and the and the providers, and I I just wondered what how do you approach it?
3: So. um, no, no orals because he has orals at home. If those had worked, we he wouldn't be there in front of you. So we, we move right to parenteral opioids. Um, we have an infusion clinic. So up front, we're going to bolus. Everyone should get bolus initially uh, because it, even with a PCA, it takes a while. Um, and there's, there's not great data, but there's a little bit of data that suggests, for, at least for hospitalized patients, that PCAs are better than bolus therapy. And when you think about the half-life of IV dilaudid, giving bolus really doesn't make sense. The PCA makes a lot more sense um, when you're using these short-acting opioids uh, versus using Uh, using bolus therapy. So our preference and actually our our policy is that patients who are admitted to the hospital go on a PCA. um, And you know, the, the, you can start a PCA in the morning and then um, and then leave your patient and round on them again the next morning. And that is not the effective use of a PCA, right? You want to come back a few hours later and make sure it's working. And lots of patients complain about PCAs when, when they get ignored once they're on them. And so you need to do that every three or four hours assessment, make sure it's working, make adjustments. I think the real key when a patient gets admitted for a vasoclusive crisis is maximizing that pain management within the first 24 hours. Because um, if you can really get things to settle down. Uh, my my typical approach is aggressive the first 24 hours. They're feeling better. I then don't make any changes for 24 to 48 hours. And then I start to talk to them about weaning down.
0: With the PCA, do you have like a formula that you like, how do how you adjust uh, you go up by 20% or down by like, is there, is there any science to that? Or is it all just sort of getting a feel for it?
3: It, uh, most of it's getting a feel for it, but the key, the one of the most important things you have to do if you're putting your patient on a PCA is you must calculate the 24-hour dose that they received. So you put someone on 0.3 of, of hydromorphone every 10 minutes, you think, well, that's a pretty tiny dose. And then, you know, yeah. oh, they're on a tiny dose, but you never bother to calculate it. And you discover that they've gotten 50 milligrams of IV diloted over the last 24 hours, right? It's a whopping dose of dilaudid. Um And so you just want to be, you, you have to check the 24-hour. That's how you know how you're doing. And when you begin to wean, right, patients can push the button more. So you think you've weaned, but you really haven't because they've just pushed the button more. um, And so you really want to keep track of that. We do find that in patients who don't come in very often, they often need large doses of IV opioids. There's no science around any of this, but sort of lots of my colleagues will note that they need really high doses um, and they're actually usually pretty with it. Um, But once you get over those first 24 to 48 hours and they quickly, Wean themselves uh, down, so it's it's interesting. I I'm worried a l- little less than people who don't come in very often about the amount of opioid, especially in a PCA, which is much safer than just throwing bolus doses on people. Um, and uh, uh, unlike patients who who. Um, maybe are in the hospital a little bit more and maybe stay a little longer. Who aren't mm. getting 50 milligrams or more of dilaudid every day? Right at some point, you have to say it's been three or four days of 50 milligrams of dilaudid. If this isn't working, it's not going to work. And those people uh, we think of as being having having failed opioid therapy, start thinking about other therapies that might be uh, that might be helpful, like ketamine or mm. meds like that.
0: These patients all get a basal dose and then the demand dosing from the PCA.
3: We rarely use the continuous. We often just give um, a bolus dose. It it really so, but but you have to really you have to think about the patient who's in front of you. So sure. Often patients haven't slept because they've waited at home and been miserable for a few days before they come in and they're exhausted. And you really right. They have to get sleep to get better. Um, The minute they fall asleep, if they're only getting uh, bolus dosing, they stop getting bolus dosing because they've slept through their their ability to push the button. And so sometimes we will use low dose continuous. Um, It really depends on the patient and the situation. Uh, Sometimes just at night to get them through so they can get some rest. Um, and, and then wean that off first. Most of the time, we can get away with just using bolus dosing.
0: Okay. Interesting. Thank you.
3: If a patient's on long-acting opioids at home, though, we do continue those.
0: Yeah. Okay. I see. So you continue those, and the bolus the bolus PCA is on top of that. Right. Very good. W- one, of, one of the other questions that, Justin, we had talked about before, the retic count. Uh, a reticulocyte count. What's how do you interpret that, and what's the utility of continuously checking it during admissions?
3: Um, so the retic count tells you how many new red cells you're making, right? And you 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 want to use that absolute retic count, right? So a retic percent of one percent. Um, is considered normal, but it's only normal if your hemoglobin is normal, right? Um, it's not normal if your hemoglobin's five. Uh, <laughs> so you can use an absolute retic, and your absolute retic should, really should be greater than 90 or 100,000 if you've got sickle cell disease and you have a chronic hemolytic problem. Um, it is um, a useful tool, right? If uh, having uh, no retic response at all, so retics of less than 1%, um, suggest an aplastic crisis. So you do that at admission. I don't know that you need to check a retic every day, but sometimes we, when when we're running into trouble, um, and and the hemoglobin has fallen, and the first question I have is, what's the retic? And they're like, well, we didn't order one today. <laughs> so it's a pretty cheap test overall. <laughs> um, okay, so you and, uh, like them? You you? Like I do. Them. I'm a, I'm a fan. I am. It's ch- cheap. It's easy.
0: That's, that's why we wanted to talk to you. We want, we want your opinion. <laughs> we want to know what you do. It's, yeah, it's certainly do. more informed than what I, I've been doing.
2: <laughs> While we're still on this, maybe I had a patient I remember very vividly that I admitted who was in a typical crisis and in getting the opioid therapy that helped his pain, he suddenly just had very severe, severe itching. Um, that soon became more of his complaint than the actual pain. And it was pretty difficult to watch. And we tried P.O. Benadryl, I.V. Benadryl. Um, I guess, is this something that you commonly see as a reaction to high dose opioids? And what are ways to potentially treat the itching complication of the opioid treatment?
3: Yeah, so these, it's a common side effect of all of these opioids, right? Patients will tell you they're allergic to morphine, but really it just causes itching, um, and it's a side effect and it is, it can be really miserable to watch someone who just constantly scratching. Um, so other than those therapies, we, we try to avoid IV, uh, Benadryl, um, and use oral oral Benadryl, diphenhydramine, um, and Atarax and those sorts of agents. When those don't work, actually, it's been studied in pediatrics. Uh, I don't think in any adult study with sickle cell disease, but putting some uh, Narcan in the PCA actually can really help decrease the itching and some of the other side effects of the opioids. And so it, it's, I think, For the kids in our hospital, at least, it's pretty standard practice that their PCA includes a a little bit of Narcan, um, and it really helps uh, control the itching.
0: Like mixed in? That's crazy.
3: Mixed in. Mixed in.
0: So so they press the button. I'm probably dumb for not understanding how (laughs) that (laughs) works. I know. They press the button, and they're getting getting naloxone along with their hydroborphone. yeah
3: yeah Uh, that is the way it works so it's a pediatric anesthesiologist at hopkins who came up with this concoction um and it really works we actually had to use it uh, last week on a patient who was just complaining of terrible itching um we don't use it very often in the adult population but i know it's pretty common in pediatrics uh, yeah it's 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 the side effects (laughs) i don't sorry
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty cool all right, Great. that'll just remain as an unknown. Yeah, I think uh, people are going to
2: listen to this episode and talk about that on rounds, though. <laughs>
0: that'll be <laughs> okay. I think we, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> I think we need to. I, I think we need to get into uh, a bit about acute chest at the end here. I I, di- I was going to ask about the transfusion threshold too. We're kind of going back and forth between the pain complications and and the the hemoglobin here. But I had just asked you about the retic count. Uh, what about the transfusion threshold? Because uh, in the in the articles I was reading, they're talking about keeping the hemoglobin greater than ten. Uh, certainly, at least perioperatively, I routinely see patients drift down to the low sixes, even uh, even high fives before someone transfuses them with an acute crisis. Unless they're having like a severe complication, like acute chest or something. Can you? Uh, how should we approach that?
3: Yeah, so it's a great question. Uh, It is part of the American Society of Hematology's Choosing Wisely campaign that we do not transfuse people just because they're having a crisis. Uh, If you're gonna transfuse someone, it should be because they're having a symptomatic anemia. So people always ask me, what's my threshold? I don't really have a threshold. You know hemoglobins before four below four make me really anxious. Um, it's really about symptoms, um, and symptoms and reticking. So if you've got if you're more anemic than usual and you are not reticking, you need to be transfused, right? Because people people have ongoing hemolysis and they're not making new blood. This is a bad combination, and so they need to be transfused. Um, patients who are hypoxic, really people with symptomatic anemia, then that means that their anemia needs to be treated. The perioperative period is a little bit different. We know there's some good actually some good studies looking at uh, perioperative transfusions um, and the general guideline is that if you have sickle cell anemia you need to have a hemoglobin of 10 um, which can be done with simple transfusions or you can be exchange transfused but really the goal before surgery is a hemoglobin of 10 for people with sickle cell anemia.
0: I think that's that's certainly much more clear than it was and it it it's more in line with what I'm seeing and I I'm not seeing a lot of these patients before they go for surgery so that's probably why I'm I'm seeing the lower hemoglobins in general
2: So our our friend who was in the clinic um goes home and is doing well but then gives you a call about a week later saying that he he feels ill he took his temperature and it was 102.2 So we we're hoping you could give us a little bit of insights into Uh, what a fever in a patient with central cell disease uh, implies and how to manage that.
3: Yeah. So unlike uh, me, if I got a fever of 102, I'd take some you know, ibuprofen, and uh, and drink lots of fluids and stay home. In uh, his case, he needs to come in and be evaluated. Um, because he doesn't have a functional spleen, he's at risk for having severe life-threatening infections, and someone needs to lay eyes on him. Probably 102, he's going to buy himself a little hospital stay, potentially. Um, but, right, he they, they needs to be evaluated. to We Flu can be very dangerous in this patient population. Um, Obviously, other infectious problems, the development of acute chest syndrome, he has to be evaluated.
2: Does that that evaluation, would that include blood cultures and empiric antibiotics typically?
3: So I would not um, put him on necessarily empiric antibiotics, but I would do the full workup, the labs check his white count, do blood cultures. If he looks toxic, then I'm gonna cover him empirically. But if he sort of looks stable, then I would watch him with you know, if i if i don't have an identifiable source
0: with the rest of our time here i would like to talk about acute chest syndrome um we we kind of already did the part one with the fever there so i guess we can maybe justin you can just kind of take it from there and let's say let's say we get our basic work up on this guy and then you can bring us sure. to the case
2: sure so our gentleman is hospitalized for a treatment of uh Uh, an acute pain crisis. On the third day in the hospital, uh, he starts to complain of severe chest pain and shortness of breath. His oxygen saturation drops to 92% and is placed on two liters of oxygen by nasal cannula. Uh, So based on this case, can you talk a little bit about what is acute chest syndrome, why it's worrisome, and then how do we diagnose acute chest syndrome?
3: Sure. And so the case you present is actually pretty typical. Um, patients don't usually present to the emergency room with acute chest syndrome. They can, but they don't usually. They usually present with a typical vasoclusive crisis or a vasoclusive crisis with much worse pain than usual. And then within a couple of days, we'll develop acute chest syndrome. And an acute chest syndrome is just that a syndrome. It's a clinical diagnosis. And it requires. Um, a new infiltrate on chest x-ray, a fever and respiratory symptoms. So cough um, and and or wheezing and chest pain. So um, really just a clinical, clinical diagnosis. The radiologist can't tell you that the patient has acute chest syndrome. They can tell you that there's an infiltrate and then you have to put the rest of the pieces together. That they're having a fever and chest pain um, and that defines acute chest syndrome. So you can have Mild acute chest syndrome and you can have really bad acute chest syndrome uh, and we we think they're probably that there's probably this real spectrum of what this disease means so if you have a community acquired pneumonia and you come in and you've got you know an infiltrate and fever and chest pain because you have a pneumonia of some sort, that's probably one kind of acute chest syndrome. Um, But the kind, the one that you sort of described here where the patient came in with a vasoclusive crisis and then 48 hours later is having severe chest pain, that that might not be infectious in fact, that that could be fat embolization syndrome. So that someone has a crisis and then fat gets released from the marrow and travels to different parts of the body. Um, And the more parts of the body it goes to, the sicker the patient is. So there's this spectrum probably from acute chest syndrome The fat just goes to the lung versus it going to the brain, the kidneys, the liver, and you're having multi-system organ failure. And those are the people who we really worry about are the people who have um, who have this acute form of acute chest syndrome. Uh, Their platelets might drop. They're really hypoxic. Uh, Those are the folks who can go downhill very quickly. For which they need some intervention, Um, and the intervention is transfusion therapy because the problem with acute chest is that you're having uh, areas of the lung that aren't getting oxygenated, which means the blood that's going through there is not getting oxygenated, and then that blood sickles. And so you have this cycle of event, and if you don't break the cycle by putting blood in there that won't sickle, the patient does very poorly.
0: When when And when you're saying there's the spectrum, I, I feel like I have seen the patient who overall looks relatively well, They they have chest pain, they have maybe a low-grade temperature, and then, like, kind of a maybe an infiltrate on chest X-ray. Those those patients, I, I would feel silly kind of sending them for an exchange transfusion. I tend to just uh, what I've what I tend to see done, and what I've done for some of these patients that don't look sick, where I don't like feel scared that this patient's going downhill, is just sort of the, just the normal stuff: oxygen, fluids, pain control. I, I may give antibiotics if I think it's appropriate. Is that sort of in line with your practice or do you treat all these patients more aggressively if they technically meet criteria?
3: No, I I think that's just the way you you should be doing it, right, is that in the prospective study that looked at over 600 cases of acute chest syndrome, only 72% of the patients required transfusion therapy. So, not everybody with acute chest syndrome requires transfusion. It's really about, again, that symptomatic anemia. If they're hypoxic, then they probably need some blood. And this requires a little bit of nuance about whether it's a simple transfusion or an exchange transfusion uh, that you do. And, and that's probably maybe a little bit more complicated than yeah. we need to be doing here. Um, but being able to recognize when you need to call for that kind of help, whether it be simple or exchange is the important piece. Um, So someone who's got a little bit of an infiltrate, a little bit of a fever, but, you know, satting 98% on two liters and they've got a hemoglobin that's reasonable and a retic that's reasonable, I am not giving blood to. But somebody who's tacking at 120 on four liters of oxygen, satting at 92% is going to get blood.
0: That's clear. Well, I think we really... Uh, I, I know we could ask you about a ton of other complications, but I think we probably got to start wrapping up. So maybe, Paul, or if you have any like last-minute questions that you wanted, burning questions?
1: Um, well, something we talked about a little bit, and it sounds like this might be a whole episode for a different day, is, is the transition between sort of pediatric and adult care and what that handoff should look like ideally. And I don't know that—I'm um, not sure we have the time to really deeply get into it, but I, I we were talking sort of off the air about how I've— Every so often the patient will just show up with a diagnosis in hand and no real sort of transition plan and I kind of lose my mind <laughs> and basically try to just get them to see a hematologist toot sweet because I feel like that's my big contribution. But what, rather than that mess, what does a good transition look like and how... How should we manage that?
3: So a good transition starts at the age of 12 or 13, um, where kids are learning about their disease and how to navigate the medical system, uh, and then they transition at 18, 19, 20, whenever the, the age of transition is for wherever you are. Um, and what should happen is that there's a summary from the pediatric provider and an identified adult provider. Uh, often the transition to primary care, it's often often useful if that happens first, and then they switch to a different hematologist, um, but, but there should be a form system. There's the Got Transitions Program, uh, So there, and the American Society of Hematology has a transition tool that all the pedi- pediatricians should be using to prepare kids uh, for transition to adult care.
0: Justin, any final? Yeah, I,
2: I have one question, because I think, um, if I remember right, the evidence is pretty impressive. For any patient that's admitted to the hospital that has citral cell disease— um, is there a way to prevent acute chest syndrome? And, and more explicitly, uh, uh, incentive spirometry, if I remember right, is actually a really big uh, uh, helpful tool. Is that right?
3: Uh, yes. When you say there's a lot of data, you mean there's a lot of data in pediatrics, ah. <laughs> just where the data is. Fair but enough. it is, and it's good data. And it suggests that it's especially when you're putting at least kids on morphine, if you give them incentive spirometer, you really help, can help prevent acute chest. So everyone should get an incentive spirometer.
0: That's simple enough. I think I can follow that one. <laughs> <laughs> Sophie, can you give a couple favorite take-home points for the audience?
3: Um, yeah, every every person with sickle cell disease sh- should should have a hematologist, um, and it's really about um, about not making assumptions about these patients when they roll through the door. I really love my clinic. Um, I you get a very distorted view when you're the inpatient provider or the resident about what it's like to to have sickle cell disease and what what these patients' lives are like. Um, But you come to my outpatient clinic and you see people who are living their lives, who, um, you know, barely graduated college because every time finals rolled around, the stress caused them to have a crisis. When they, you know, a week before their wedding, they had a crisis right before, after the wedding, no honeymoon because they had a crisis and they've lived their life like that and yet they're still able to function and take care of their families and go to work every day. Uh, and so they're an incredible group of people uh, and I'm really lucky to have the opportunity to take care of them. And so it really, I think every resident should spend time in the outpatient sickle cell clinic to see what, what it's really like to take care of this patient population.
1: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There, Thank you.
0: (laughs) I was asleep.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's past your bedtime. Get the show notes for this show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
0: I thought you were having a stroke, Paul. I was like, what is <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Nope, it was my Tripped fault. It, it was just my fault.
2: <laughs> we are committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to Martha Bruccato for help with this episode and to the social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Justin Burke.
0: I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
1: And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And goodbye.
0: we send a citation for your CV. This is an open access publication.
3: (laughs) Awesome. All right. This,
2: I think is really going to open up new doors for your career. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm
0: sure it
3: will. (laughs) You guys are hilarious.